My name is John Okowski. Uh They kind of announced me last couple weeks and this morning, and I'm grateful for it. Um, I'm a apprentice minister here uh, with Cross Point Church. I've been over the last uh, few weeks preparing for this message. If you were here a few weeks ago, uh, I, I did a, another s- a message on the fool of Proverbs, and so I, I kind of gave you my brief introduction at that time, and so I won't won't have time to go through that again today. But if you have any questions for me, feel free. Uh, Bring them up at the picnic or after after the service here. We'll be around for a little while. Um, today, uh, we're going to continue on in our series uh, in Proverbs, in Proverbs in Wisdom, uh, specifically in Wisdom. But it's the end of the series, and I'm going to change our focus a little bit. I want to paint a different picture of wisdom than we've been seeing throughout our series. Wisdom, we have defined throughout the series as skill for life. And, and that's that's how we've been looking at wisdom. But I want to change perspective. I want to be a little bit more specific than skill for life. And I'm going to take us out of the book of Proverbs and I'm going to move us into the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we're going to be spending most of our time in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, verses 17 through 30. And we're going to be looking at the wisdom of God in Christ. We're going to, we're going to specifically look at wisdom as the gospel, as Christ come to this earth as God among us. Uh, you can see on your notes there that there are not any questions this week, and, and there's a blank there over the big idea. Your big idea this week, and uh, Lord willing, this will come across, but the big idea starting out, so you can write it in, and when Dave asks you what's the big idea, you can cheat, and you can help me out, and say, hey, the big idea is the wisdom of God in Christ brings unity. True unity comes through Christ. Unity among the church only comes in unity with Christ. There's our big idea. There's our passage. This is where we're going to start. But um, before we get going, I'm going to, before we get any further, I'm going to open us up in some prayer. Um, get the Lord's blessing on, on this message. Father, we rejoice in worship, um, coming before you uh, to sing your praise, coming into your presence to rejoice in your love and in your grace. And Lord, as we continue on, uh, may this message be from you for us, that we may rejoice more, uh, more rejoice greater, uh, lost for words at the uh, the joy and and grace that comes from um, being in church with our brothers and sisters, being um, among our family uh, before you, and the, the blessing that comes from you through, through this time. Lord, we rejoice, and, and I pray that this message would be a continuation of that, that you would work through me, that uh, our hearts and our minds would be focused on you, and that as, as we song, sang about uh, the cross, that our hearts and our minds would be focused on the cross, that Christ would shine through and that we would leave today unified, together, as a church body, as children of God, in the unity that comes from your Son and your work on the cross. Lord, thank you for that work. Thank you for your, your grace. And uh, bless us in this message today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
before we jump right into the text, I want to take a few minutes and kind of give some background. Since we're jumping out of Proverbs and we're moving into 1 Corinthians, I can't really play off of the last sermons we've heard. We're in a different book. We're in a different kind of message. So I'm going to lay some groundwork in 1 Corinthians just briefly, just basically. I want us to see uh, what Paul is focusing on in verses 17 through 31. Why is Paul writing these, these lines? What, what is the point? What is Paul's mind set as he's writing this? What is, what is he thinking about? The letter is written in response. Um, it's written, written by the Apostle Paul to the city of Corinth, to the church of Corinth, in response to some specific problems that he's heard about. Um, the church was dividing, uh, and they're dividing specifically over the wisdom of men, the eloquence and persuasiveness of their chosen leaders, and the prestige that they themselves would receive from following them. Uh, we can see this uh, in 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to go back a little bit, and we're going to start in chapter, uh, verse 11. So 1 Corinthians 1, 11 through 13, it just, just describes the problems that were going on. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The Corinthians were stealing the glory of God and giving it to men. On top of that, they were, they were stealing glory from those men for themselves. They, I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. They wanted the credit. They wanted some of that glory that was coming off the leader they were, they were proclaiming. And we can do that a little bit Nowadays, I mean, this isn't something that went on there. This sin changes names, but it, it follows through. And we might not be in here going, I follow Dave. Well, no, no, no. You fo- I follow Scott. Now that's, no, 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 Peter. When Peter was up here, that's the guy I follow. Maybe we don't do that. I hope we don't do that. But what we can do is we can say, well, you know, I follow John MacArthur. I follow John Piper. And we get these big celebrity names and we, we divide ourselves. And we, we, we lose the focus. The same thing that Paul is saying the Corinthians did. Another loss of focus. In the first century, there was this relationship that we don't have today, but it was between the slave and the free. And the slave's life, the quality of life a slave would lead, depended heavily on where he stood in status in his home and where he stood in relation to other owners around him, who his master was. That really depended uh, on how good his life was going to be. Uh, the emperor's slave, the, the slaves that were owned by the emperor of the, of the, of the empire uh, would live a much better life than a free farmer or a free merchant because he carried with him in his life the authority of the emperor. He got some of that prestige. We continue this idea in our lives today. Uh, a cook, a taxi driver, uh, a secretary, these are, you know, normal jobs, just normal people, but depending on who you work for, who you serve, we can sometimes steal the prestige from them. And we can see this kind of picture um, in my own life. I used to be a cabinet maker for a number of years, and I 
if I'm going to describe to you what I did in cabinet making, uh, my first response isn't going to be, well, I, you know, I built some cabinets for some no-name company in the middle of uh, Burlington, Wisconsin. No, no, no. No, my first response is I built the tables and the doors at Kincaid's Steakhouse downtown. If you go down there, you can see my work. Or, you know, Harley-Davidson? Yeah, I, I built the display cases for all the Harley-Davidson dealerships around town and across the country, actually. Uh, you know the Calatrava? You know the big, big beautiful art, art museum? Yeah, I did the lunchroom in there. I'm not Calatrava. I have nothing to do with Calatrava, but I steal the glory from Calatrava by saying I did some some work there. So this is kind of the picture that we're looking at. In Corinth, this idea followed into the church, and they divided into groups as they flocked to the leader that they thought would give them the most clout among their peers. Paul would uh, have us fight off this division. This is what Paul is writing this for. This is our context. Paul would have us uh, understand that the battle there is with a misunderstanding of the wisdom of God. That's why we do these things. We we misunderstand fundamentally this. Where's that connection? We're going to get there. Uh, Verse 10 is his driving message for the rest of the chapter, uh, for the rest of the first four chapters of Corinthians, but specifically for our our purposes, chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. We must keep verse 10 in mind as we progress through 17 through 31. Keep 10 in mind. And while we're doing it, ask ourselves, why is Paul writing the rest of chapter 1? Why is Paul writing verses 17 through 31? The answer is verse 10. The answer is unity. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1:17 through 18. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we seek the cross in anything but humble, self-denying repentance or preaching it from any self-glorification or self-gratification, we steal from it and we empty it of its power. In a commentary uh, on this verse, Anthony Thistleton says, To treat the gospel of the cross of Christ as a vehicle for promoting self-esteem, self-fulfillment, and self-assertion turns it upside down, and it empties it of all that it offers and demands. The cross of Christ offers salvation, but it demands death to self. The message of the Christian, if it has any power whatsoever, is the message that Paul is preaching uh, in chapter 2, where he says, I preach the testimony of God. I preach Christ and him crucified. This is where unity comes from. This is where power of God comes from. This message then, as it is today, is countercultural. The idea of a crucified Messiah, uh, the idea of a cursed Savior, 
the message of God being treated like a criminal, the message of a sinful world in need of such a thing. That's what, what Paul is preaching here. It's not a message of the intellectual, uh, eloquent personality of any one preacher or of any one uh, communicator, of uh, any leader among the church. This is about Christ and him crucified. The Corinthians were missing the point. They were focusing on the wrong things. They're, they were looking in the wrong places. We can stand unified in our submission to Christ. We can be unified in the cross of our salvation. Now, many of you have uh, relayed stories to me um, and, and to others around here of obscure gospel messages that brought you to faith or, or faith that came through Awana programs. Uh, this program based on children playing together and, and growing in Christ, but playing together and building friendships and learning skills, it doesn't seem the most conducive place for adult conversions. And yet, some of you in here, that's exactly what happened. You were saved through a children's ministry. It doesn't seem, seem right, but everywhere the gospel goes, this is what we see happening. Whether we're preaching it from uh, children's ministry or we're preaching it from the pulpit on Sunday, whether we're in the streets handing out tracts or, or just a tract in the garbage can that you picked up, the gospel message is where this salvation comes from. It changes lives no matter where it goes. What the world sees as foolishness, as counterintuitive, a children's ministry saving adults. This foolishness is the gospel is described in Romans as the power of God unto salvation to all those who believe. And a unifying call is going out in this passage, out of foolishness, into life. That's why we're connecting this with Proverbs and the rest of uh, a wisdom passage. Wisdom and foolishness are put up aside each other here as, uh, as battling. But I want to focus on power. Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Uh, Paul puts this in here. He says wisdom and power are aligned together in Christ. Let's see what he says when speaking of God. Or why he says this. When speaking of God, when wisdom without power would be impotent in action and power without wisdom would be unholy. So, so we picture it this way. If God were to act anything in wisdom but with no power, it could accomplish anything. It has no follow-through. It's got no, no power to back it up. If God were to act in power without wisdom, it would be chaos. He'd cease to be God. Satan is a picture of the actions of power without wisdom. His working is pure evil. The crucified life, the life submitted to the wisdom of God in Christ, displays itself in saving, sanctifying, unifying power. There is an aspect here of the power of God working. The view of ourselves as unified in our need for Christ is further emphasized by Paul's continued contrasting of man's wisdom and God's wisdom. This is a picture of what Christ did as he lived and as he calls us to do with him. This life of power comes from submission to the cross of Christ. This life of power comes submission to the Father. 
Paul takes us in verse 19 uh, to Isaiah. So we're going to follow him. We're going to go to Isaiah 24, 29, uh, verses 13 and 14. I want to read that passage quick. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This is the wisdom of man. Their fear of God, their fear of me, is the commandment taught by men. That's what Isaiah is saying. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. What Isaiah is telling us is that man left on his own cannot find the wisdom of God in Christ. Because while they draw near with their lips, their hearts are far from God. Man's own wisdom is never enough to bring one to God. We need something more. We need more than empty words. We need a heart changed and devoted to God. We need a direct revelation from God. We need a change of heart brought only by God. If we were to live wise lives, if we were to live God-glorifying lives, we must be transformed from the inside by the power of God, by the wisdom of God found in Christ. This unifies the church. This is where we stand together, unified in the power of God that comes at the cross. Verse 20 says, back in, <laughs> jumping back into 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Highlighted here in verse 20, we have three pictures. We have the wise, we have the scribe, and the debater. The wise is a, is a general term. It's a, a term that's used for uh, just general wisdom. Uh, this is a person that Solomon is going to call wise in his own eyes. Then we've got the scribe. Now the scribe is, is getting a little bit more specific. Paul wants us to see specifically someone in the scribe. He, he's talking more of a Jewish nature. He's talking about someone who is wise in the law, who is uh, a preacher of the law, someone an expert in the Jewish culture. That's what he's saying with scribe. And then he goes on and he's talking about the debater. And the debater is where he brings in the Greek and the Greek philosopher. These are the ones that are seeking out God in their, in their own wisdom. They, they are the greatest of minds. And as they look for the truths of God, they, they look to their own hearts and their own minds. Paul is holding up the best the world has to offer here. And he's judging them alongside the wisdom of God 
we find in Christ. Uh, Paul summarizes what he thinks of these three in the end of verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? The best you've got is foolishness to God. Reality is, what he's describing is, who would have thought up Christ? Who would have thought up God becoming one of his creation? The idea of a virgin birth is beyond the greatest philosophical minds of history. And the idea of an atoning sacrifice of and by that same God is unheard of. And it's preposterous. To cap it all off, a man rising from the dead to declare the end and the elimination of death and sin is absurd to the mind that is perishing. But Jesus Christ lived this reality. Jesus Christ came for this reality. And Jesus Christ freely gives himself to all that will humbly come to him, submitted and trusting in this reality. This is beyond the wisdom of the world. This is beyond the comprehension of the greatest minds this world has to offer. This is the wisdom of God available in Christ that will unify us. And now Charles Hodge comments on um, this passage. Christ is the true wisdom. He is the Logos, the Revealer, in whom dwells all the fullness of the Godhead and all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He quotes from John 1, No man knoweth the Father but the Son, and he to whom the Son shall reveal him. Union with him, therefore, makes the believer truly wise and secures the knowledge of God whose glory is revealed in the face of Christ and whom to know is eternal life. To know Christ is life. Hodge says Christ is true wisdom. To know him, to love him, to unite yourself with him is wisdom. It is union with Christ, wisdom made flesh, that will unite this church that will unite all church, that will unite the church. Union with Christ is where we stand. That is the beginning point. In verse 22 and 23, Paul continues on. He says, The wisdom of God in Christ is greater greater than any act the Jews want to see, any sign they're looking for, any, any uh, great word the philosophers could ever think up. And he, and he kind of expounds on this in, in Colossians. So we're, we're bouncing a little bit. We're going to go to Colossians. Um, Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10. And I, you don't need to turn there because we're just going to go real quick through it. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him we find our unity. Why does he write this? What is Paul saying? How does this connect with 1 Corinthians? The philosophy of this world 
is empty deceit. It cannot be trusted to grant any kind of wisdom, let alone the wisdom of God in Christ. What Paul's saying is you will not find Christ in your intellectual genius. Christ is the fullness and deity of God. He is the wisdom and power of God. He's the head of all rule and authority. He can only be grasped fully in the eyes of faith. And that faith, granted at conversion, is the greatest sign that stands available to all for the Jew or the Greek. The new creation, the new birth that is the Christian, the salvation. This is a greater sign than the Jews could have comprehended. And and this is what Paul is proclaiming. The gospel unites the church in the death of Christ. The gospel unites the church in our need to give up of ourselves and die to our self-righteousness. The gospel unites the church in his resurrection, forever to live for him and in him. We have been forgiven of all of our sin and stand justified before our Lord and our God in him. No greater sign and no greater wisdom can be found than this. And this is exactly where we are at when Paul says, This is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, Why is this message folly? If you're a believer here today, you, you, you may be questioning, this sounds, sounds like the gospel that I that saved me. Why is this folly? I don't understand. Let's take the eyes of an unbeliever. Let's look at this. God at his weakest, tortured, bruised, beaten, his beard pulled out, his face more marred than any man, unrecognizable even as a man, hung on a tree to die, dehydrated, thirsty, lungs crushed by the weight of his own body, hanging from piercings in his wrists and in his ankles, burning with the sensation of the nerves being crushed by the pins. He cannot breathe. He is forsaken of the Father. He is God's wrath is poured out on him, the weakest, most pitiable, disgusting, Graceful-looking man is our Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. God himself on the cross. It is this point. It is at this very point that God's wisdom defeats sin and death. God at his very weakest paid man's debt. God at his very weakest destroyed all of man's foolish, foolish wisdom. He began remaking the entire creation at that point. He displayed his power, his glory. He raised the sun from the dead. He overpowered the forces of evil, sin, and death forever. This is the weakness of God that destroys man's strength. 
this is the wisdom of God that we can unite in. It's not what the world is seeking, but it is the power of God unto salvation. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is our last section of this passage. In this section, Paul is asking some simple questions. How are Christians, as a whole, looked upon in the world? Are they held up as geniuses or as intellectual giants among men? How many of us are wealthy throughout the world? How many hold positions of power and of influence? How many come from families of influence? How many, by the means of their very name alone, can get by in this life in power and in influence? Paul answers it. He answers it a few times. Not many. Now, thank God, it's not not any. But it is not many. For the most part, Christians are vilified in the world. We're looked around as backwards, ignorant, naive, superstitious. We refuse to join the enlightened age. The majority of the Christian faithful throughout the world are not the wealthiest, most powerful people in the world. Now, again, thank the Lord for those who bend the knee to Christ and are in positions of authority and power to to make some gospel-glorifying changes but they are not many. The called of Christ are the foolish, the weak, and the low and despised in the world. Why would God choose us in our sinful state, a people with little influence or power to change, to bring to nothing things that are? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I want us to look at verse 21. In the wisdom of God. Verse 24. Those who are called. Verse 26. Consider your calling. Verse 27 and 28. God chose. God chose. God chose. And in verse 30, because of Him, you are in Christ. God has placed himself. The wisdom of God is set up as the active force that is bringing men to know Christ through the message of the cross. It is his grace that he extends in the message of salvation to those he has chosen, those he has called. This last section uh, reminds me of, of 
evangelism. Now, everything reminds me of evangelism. I've got a, a heart for evangelism, so you'll have to bear with me on that a little bit. But I see the street preacher. I see the street evangelist in this passage. And I know some of you uh, find this as foolish as the, the world does. Uh, and I'll leave that on you. But the reality is, I want you to see a picture of the, the man on the street corner on a Saturday night preaching the gospel to strangers. Perfectly. Strangers, they, he doesn't know them. They don't know him. He's cussed at. He's uh, ignored mostly, maligned, mistreated. He leaves his family. He gives his time. Out of his own pocket, he's paying for tracks to hand out, again, to perfect strangers on a Saturday night. Is it because he is more eloquent? Does he have a, a preacher's tongue that he can, he can convince anybody that this is, this is the truth? Or is it because God has given him some special ability to hand out tracts? He's, he's got a tract pocket. He's just extra arms. It's crazy. He's everywhere. Is, is that the picture that we're getting? No, he's the picture of the average Christian. Called out by God, not because of who he is, but because of who God is. He's living a life devoted to preaching the gospel, not because of his special abilities in that, but because he has been called out from that crowd of revilers he stands in front of. He knows them, he was them, he is them. He's been called out, he's been granted new life. And now he's sent back, empowered by the cross of Christ to extend that message to himself, to who he was, to the world. In God's wisdom, he has bought a foolish people to proclaim a foolish message to a foolish world. The wisdom of God in Christ is righteousness, the verse says. Sanctification and redemption. Because of God, those who believe are in Christ, who has become for us righteousness. Now, righteousness, it just means um, to do right things. Pretty simple definition, but Christ submitted to God in all things, and it's in him that we have the power to submit to him in all things. This then brings about our sanctification. It brings about our setting apart of our life to God. It brings about holiness. That's where this aims. And it brings about salvation, redemption, the freedom from sin that allows us the ability in him to accomplish all that scripture commands us to do. In Christ, we can bridle our tongues. What have we been talking about in Proverbs? In Christ, we can bridle our tongues. In Christ, we can build godly relationships. In Christ, we can overcome all of our desires. In Christ, we are wise and not foolish. It's in him, the pinnacle of God's wisdom. In him, in salvation, united as a church, going out in this message, this is where power is to overcome all that we've been talking about throughout this series. 
That's why this is the end of the series. This is the top. Christ is the power of God in wisdom. This caps it. This is where we have power to accomplish these things. Your salvation is not the end. But living the life of wisdom in Christ is the gospel end. The wisdom of God on display in the church becomes is when the church becomes more like Christ. When the church grows in gospel maturity, that's the wisdom of God in Christ at work. Going out as the street evangelist, doing the work of God, the work we were all called to, saving, redeeming, one soul at a time, one gospel message at a time. This then brings unity. If the message of the cross is not about me, but about the glory of God, then we can all be united in the work that he has called us to. If we are all called to the same task, then there's no room for division over who's doing what and who's doing what better. We're all called to go in one direction, together, with one mind. If we have not saved ourselves, but are brought to saving faith, by the call of God, by the message of God, through the work of God in the cross of Jesus Christ, then there is no room for boasting among men. So then, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's his glory. He deserves it. He will have it. The wisdom of God in Christ unifies the church in the understanding that we are all sinners in need of grace. And that is grace came to us, comes to us freely through our crucified Messiah, our crucified and risen Savior. The wisdom of God in Christ unifies the church in the common need of denying ourselves and following the commands and teachings of Christ, taking up our crosses daily and following after him. Wisdom of God in Christ unifies us in true wisdom, in true power. Wisdom and power that transforms families. Wisdom and power that transforms neighborhoods. Wisdom and power that transforms churches. Wisdom and power that transforms the world. The wisdom of God in Christ unifies the church in a common message. All mankind is lost in trespass and sin. We have run from God. We have rejected God and we have rebelled against him. That is mankind as a whole. All of mankind is deserving of hell. There is none righteous, no, not one. And is actively running towards it in their thoughts, words, and deeds every single day. They're out there running. We're in here running. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth. But... Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth in the wisdom of God to live a sinless, perfect life. He displayed the wisdom of God in word and in power, doing signs and wonders of proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This Jesus went willingly to the cross and died. He went willingly, taking our sin, our condemnation, our punishment upon himself, and he took the wrath of God that we rightly deserved. He was buried and rose again the third day. His resurrection is the promise of God of resurrection with him into his glorious kingdom. As he currently sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us before the Father, the message that we proclaim 
the message that we go forth with, the message that unifies us, is the wisdom of God in Christ. The question we're left with then, what will you do with the wisdom of God? I'm going to close this in some prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the blessings of our church family. We thank you for the power offered to us in unity and unifying power through the cross of Christ. Lord, for those that are here that have not submitted themselves to the cross, submitted themselves to the crucified Savior, submitted themselves to the only one that can truly bring unity to their lives and and, and bring them salvation and hope for a future. Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts and I pray that you would open up their eyes. I pray that you would show them your glory, that they would humbly seek you in your power and in your wisdom. Lord, I rejoice in, in, in this church and, and the unification that you are offering us, the ability for us to come in you to all wisdom and power. Please, as we go about our day, as we go about our weeks, may we hold fast to Christ. And it's in his glorious name. And I'll leave you with this from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a certain servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.